Shalom, friends. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Access. This is Timothy, and I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me today in studying the scriptures. May Jehovah God guide us into his truth. Quick question. Is there any dream that you've had that you wish might actually come true? I'm not talking about dreams like wishes or goals that you have control over, but the sort of dream that you might have while you're asleep, or, or at least not whipping it up yourself. I have a confession. Ever since I was a child, I would daydream about my dream house. I'd spend countless hours in my waking moments, drawing and sketching and, and creating floor plans. I'd envision how I'd use those spaces and even picture the decor. Of course, all this was happening in my mind where I was in control of what I was thinking about. But when I'd go to sleep at night, I would dream of places and situations that felt so real. Sometimes it was just a snippet or a snapshot, like a scene out of a movie. And I wouldn't think much of it, but I got in the habit of writing down the details of these vivid dreams, and sometimes I felt compelled to share it with particular people. There was one dream that was just randomly bestowed upon me, like a clear picture message that was downloaded from the cloud into my mind. Now, just for some context, this was during that time when I was being drawn toward my friend Beverly and she was still undecided about being with me. She'd asked me what I pictured her life might look like if we were together, like how many children we'd have and what sort of place we'd be living in. It was almost like my high school guidance counselor was asking me about my five-year or ten-year plan. <laughs> my response? It wasn't so much a wish on my part, but a very clear picture that I received, almost like a vision of sorts, and it just felt so real. I chuckled as I shared with her that in my dream, <laughs> we were in a minivan, and as I looked in the rearview mirror, there were five children, and out the back window, there was a white picket fence. That's it. The entire dream. Uh, rearview mirror, five kids, white picket fence. Uh, so clear in my mind, and I hadn't forgotten it through the years. Well, long story short, we got married a few months after that conversation. Uh, we had our first son nine months after the wedding, and then two more sons shortly after. So there we were, about four years into our marriage, with three little energetic boys. And I thought for sure that was going to be it. You know, we were tired. Bev and I, we both got sick, and after recovering from our surgeries, all of a sudden, that vivid dream I had six years earlier came flooding back into my mind's eye. At this point, uh, you see, we had a Dodge Journey, a crossover, not a minivan. <laughs> and up to this point, I refused to purchase a minivan for any reason whatsoever. It's like admitting defeat or something. <laughs> so a seven-seater crossover seemed like a good compromise. Anyway, fast forward a couple years later, our first daughter was born. Our boys were growing and the Dodge journey just wouldn't cut it anymore. So I had to bite the bullet and we finally upgraded to an eight-seater minivan, a Chrysler Pacifica. Within a year of the vehicle upgrade, Bev becomes pregnant again with our fifth child. So we're still living in the same house today from the time that we got married, and we don't have a white picket fence. One day, as I'm backing up out of our driveway, I looked in the rear view mirror and dun 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 dun, my dream came true. Here Beverly is beside me in the passenger seat, and in the rear view, I see five kids, and out through the back window, get this, our neighbors across the street had just recently put up a white picket fence. Beverly and I both chuckled in awe and wonder at the thought of how everything ended up the way that it did. You see, we didn't plan this. I remember how in that moment my heart was filled with warmth and gratitude. 
and a confidence in God um, that reminded me that he's still leading my family to where he would have us be. Our study today is called A Dream Come True. If you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. Also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on any of our studies. As you listen today, I do recommend having a Bible to follow along, and I encourage you to take some time with your own Access communities, your small groups and families, and review the study together. Now let's get started. A dream come true. Today, my wife Beverly will be reading Genesis chapters 42 and 43 from the Complete Jewish Bible. Now Yaakov saw that there was grain in Egypt. So Yaakov said to his sons, Why are you staring at each other? Look, he said, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from there, so that we can stay alive and not die. Thus Yosef's ten brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, except for Binyamin, Yosef's brother. Yaakov did not send him with his brothers, because he was afraid something might happen to him. The sons of Israel came to buy along with the others that came, since the famine extended to the land of Canaan. Yosef was governor over the land. It was he who sold to all the people of the land. Now when Yosef's brothers came and prostrated themselves before him on the ground, Yosef saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted toward them as if he were a stranger and spoke harshly with them. He asked them, Where are you from? They answered, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Yosef recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Remembering the dreams he had had about them, Yosef said to them, You are spies! You've come to spot our country's weaknesses. No, my lord, they replied, your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. We're upright men. Your servants aren't spies. No, he said to them, you've come to spy out our country's weaknesses. They said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest stayed with our father, and another one is gone. Just as I said, replied Yosef, your spies. Here's how you can prove you're not lying. As Pharaoh lives, you will not leave here unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother. Meanwhile, you will be kept in custody. This will prove whether there is any truth in what you say. Otherwise, as Pharaoh lives, you are certainly spies." Then he put all of them together in prison for three days. On the third day, Yosef said to them, Do what I say and stay alive, for I fear God. If you are upright men, let one of your brothers remain incarcerated in the prison you are being kept in, while you go and carry grain back to relieve the famine in your homes. But bring your youngest brother to me. In this way your statements will be verified, and you won't die. So they did it. They said to each other, We are in fact guilty concerning our brother. He was in distress and pleaded with us. We saw it and wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us now. Reuven answered them, Didn't I tell you, don't wrong the boy? But you wouldn't hear it. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They had no idea that Yosef understood them, since an interpreter was translating for them. Yosef turned away from them and wept. Then he returned and spoke to them. He took Shimon from among them and put him in prison before their eyes. Next, he ordered that their containers be filled with grain, that every man's money be put back in his pack, and that they be given provisions for the journey. When these things had been done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and departed. But at camp that night, as one of them opened his pack to give fodder to his donkey, he noticed his money. There it was, just inside his pack. 
He said to his brothers, My money has been restored. There it is, right in my pack. At that, their hearts sank. They turned, trembling to one another, and said, What is this that God has done to us? They returned to Yaakov, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them. The man, the lord of the land, spoke harshly with us. He took us for spies in his country. We said to him, We are upright men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is gone, and the youngest stayed with our father in the land of Canaan. But the man, the lord of the land, said to us, Here is how I will know that you are upright men. Leave one of your brothers with me, take grain to relieve the famine in your homes, and go on your way. But bring your youngest brother to me. By this I will know that you aren't spies, but are upright men. Then I will return your brother to you, and you will do business in the land. Next, as they emptied their packs, there was each man's bag of money in his pack, and when they and their father saw their bags of money, they became afraid. Yaakov, their father, said to them, You have robbed me of my children. Yosef is gone. Shimon is gone. Now you're taking Binyamin away. It all falls on me. Reuven said to his father, If I don't bring him back to you, you can kill my own two sons. Put him in my care. I will return him to you. But he replied, My son will not go down with you. His brother is dead, and he alone is left. If anything were to happen to him while traveling with you, you would bring my gray hair down to Sheol with grief. Chapter 43 But the famine was severe in the land, so when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. Yehuda said to him, The man expressly warned us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you bring such trouble my way by telling the man you had another brother? They answered, The man kept questioning us about ourselves and about our kinsmen. He asked, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered according to the literal meaning of his questions. How were we to know he would say, Bring your brother down? Yehuda said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will make preparations and leave, so that we may stay alive and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me responsible. If I fail to bring him to you and present him to your face, let me bear the blame forever. Except for our lengthy delay, we would have been there again by now. Their father Israel answered them, If that's how it is, do this. Take in your containers some of the land's best products and bring the man a gift. Some healing resin, a little honey, aromatic gum, opium, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take twice the amount of money with you and return the money that came back with you in your packs. It could have been an oversight. Yes, and take your brother too, and get ready, and go again to the man. May El Shaddai give you favor in the man's sight, so that he will release to you your other brother as well as Benjamin. As for me, if I must lose my children, lose them I will. The men took that gift, and they took twice the money with them, and Benjamin. Then they prepared, went down to Egypt, and stood before Yosef. When Yosef saw Benjamin with them, he said to his household manager, Take the men inside the house, kill the animals, and prepare the meat. These men will dine with me at noon. The man did as Yosef ordered and brought the men into Yosef's house. Upon being ushered inside Yosef's house, the men became fearful. They said, It's because of the money that was returned in our packs the first time that we have been brought inside, so that he can use it as an excuse to attack us, take us as slaves, and seize our donkeys too. So they approached the manager of Yosef's household and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. 
Please, my lord, the first time we indeed came down to buy food, but when we got to camp we opened our packs, and there inside our packs was each man's money, the full amount. We have brought it back with us. Moreover, we have brought down other money to buy food. We have no idea who put our money in our packs. Stop worrying, he replied. Don't be afraid. Your god and the god of your father put treasure in your packs. As for your money, I was the one who received it. Then he brought Shimon out to them. The man brought the men into Yosef's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he provided fodder for their donkeys. Then they got their gift ready for Yosef's arrival at noon, for they had heard that they were going to eat a meal there. When Yosef arrived home, they went in the house and presented him with the gift they had brought with them, then prostrated themselves before him on the ground. He asked them how they were and inquired, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They answered, Your servant our father is well, yes, he is still alive, as they bowed in respect. He looked up and saw Binyamin his brother, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? He added, May God be good to you, my son. Then Yosef hurried out, because his feelings toward his brother were so strong that he wanted to cry. He went into his bedroom, and there he wept. Then he washed his face and came out, but he controlled himself as he gave the order to serve the meal. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians included at the meal by themselves. Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews, because that is abhorrent to them. So they sat there facing him, the firstborn in the place of honor, the youngest in last place, and the men expressed their amazement to each other. Each was given his serving there in front of him, but Binyamin's portion was five times as large as any of theirs. So they drank and enjoyed themselves with him. Before we get into observing these chapters a little more closely, I would like to start with just making a few notes. If you have your handouts with you, you could follow along in the sidebar. These notes are going to help set the stage for uh, what we're getting into when we approach chapters 42 and 43. So we know that there was a famine, but what caused the famine? As much as we could easily say that God supernaturally caused there to be a famine uh, because he had revealed in Pharaoh's dream and interpreted that through Yosef, there is a pattern of God where he uses the natural cycles and elements of this created world to cause things to come about. In this case, the famine was due to a lack of rainfall. Simple as that. Now we're going to look at the geography of Egypt to see how this lack of rainfall caused such a widespread famine. So Egypt was called Upper Egypt, which is located in the south. And Lower Egypt is located in the north. And this is because the Nile River flows from south to north, um, Upper Egypt to Lower Egypt toward the Mediterranean Sea. So there in the north, Lower Egypt, uh, this was the Delta region where the city Goshen is. And this Delta region, although it's a rainless desert, you see due to the abundance of the Nile and the marshland that's created by all those fingers that spread out in the land of Goshen, um, it's a very fertile and excellent place for growing crops and, and for grazing animals. During the time of Yosef, the Nile, you see, it didn't dry up, even with the drought, and, and people still had access to water. But with the lack of rainfall for that several-year period, the Nile didn't overflow to create the marshlands. So that's why there was a massive reduction in food production, and there just wasn't enough food to sustain the people. 
This famine caused people to turn toward Egypt's storehouses to purchase grains. Now, the price for these grains was very high. Uh, those poorer families, they would end up selling themselves in bond service to Pharaoh in exchange for grain. Now, from their viewpoint, it was this Semite foreigner, Yosef, who was to blame for this travesty. As he was a front man, the visible symbol of the entire food exchange program, Pharaoh put him there. And he was getting both the credit and the blame. Fast forward to after Yosef's death and a long period of social upheaval, you see the Egyptians, they end up blaming Yosef's kin, the tribes of Israel, for their oppressed condition. The Egyptians then turn the tables on the Israelites and we see the oppressed become the oppressors. This was the beginning of the cycle of persecution of the Hebrew people in foreign lands. And we read about this throughout scripture and continue to witness that even today. And with all that being said, let's get into our passages. So here at the beginning of chapter 42, we kind of get an idea of the character of Yaakov's fully grown adult sons. Um, it's interesting. He says to them, why are you staring at each other? We're, we're about to die of starvation here and you guys are doing nothing. Now remember, these weren't teenagers. These guys were fully grown. They had their own families, no doubt, and they weren't doing anything to help the situation. And Yaakov's like, listen, there's grain in Egypt. Why don't you boys go get off your butt and, and get us some grain? We're going to die here. And we're told that he sends 10 of his sons to Egypt, but he keeps his youngest, Binyamin, he keeps them at home. Now, why does Yaakov keep Binyamin at home? Was he too young for the journey? Uh, not quite. Uh, but what made him so special? Now, if you remember who Binyamin was, he was the only brother of Yosef from the same mother, Rachel, uh, the one that Yaakov loved of all his wives the most. And after having lost Yosef, Binyamin was the only one that he had left from Rachel, who died after having given birth to Binyamin. In verse 5, the sons of Israel arrive in Egypt and they prostrate themselves before the grand vizier, Safnat Paneach, a.k.a. Yosef a long-lost brother, only they don't know that it's Yosef. He looked a lot more like an Egyptian, you see. And given this name, Safnat is Egyptian for code or secret, and Paneach means solver or breaker. And he's named so for his ability to interpret dreams. He was given this name by the Pharaoh. But why didn't the brothers recognize Yosef? I mean, sure, 20 years had passed, so he probably aged. But Yosef looked more like a clean-shaven Egyptian, you see, Hebrews, they traditionally always wore beards. And he would have worn much of the Egyptian cosmetics that display royalty. Remember, he was in the second highest position of authority next to Pharaoh alone. In verse 9, we see that Yosef remembered his dreams of the 11 sheaves of grain bowing down to his and, and of the 11 stars, the moon and the sun paying homage to him. And it would have been at this moment where Yosef came to realize how God's divine providence was at work all along. His dream had come true. And then we see him do something a little strange here. Why do you think Yosef accuses them of being spies? I mean, how does that even make any sense? Did Yosef just want to see them squirm in their helplessness? Kind of like he did when he was at the bottom of that dry well several years earlier? Why did Yosef have them thrown into prison? 
Now, it, it was wise for Yosef to separate his brothers from the rest of the people that were seeking to buy grain so that he could deal with his family separately without anybody criticizing him. I mean, who needs all that surveillance anyway? As he continues to interrogate these Hebrew men, Safranat Paneach learns that they have a younger brother at home. Well, his very own brother, Binyamin. And so he demands that one of the brothers is to retrieve the youngest brother and bring him to Egypt. In verse 18, we see that on the third day of the brothers being incarcerated, Yosef changes the plan. He would send back nine of the brothers with grain for their families while holding Shimon hostage in prison until Binyamin is brought back. Now, why do you think Shimon was held hostage rather than the eldest brother, Reuven? Well, when the brothers were speaking amongst themselves in their own language in verses 21 and 22, they didn't know that Yosef understood them. And it was very clear at that point that And it was very clear that they couldn't forget that fervent pleading and the terror-filled voice of that young teenager that was dragged away as a slave when they sold Yosef to the Midianites those many years ago. The distress of Yosef's soul, they remembered. And now they were in distress for their own life. Reuven took that opportunity to make it very clear, reminding them that he had warned them that this would happen. And in saying this, Reuven didn't realize that he was clearing himself. And it was Shimon that actually was the eldest brother at that point that had willingly participated in this crime that was committed against Yosef. And in a gracious act, Safnat Paneach orders his people to fill up the men's sacks with grain and enough provisions for their journey back home, and also to place their payment for the grains in their sacks before sending them on their way. On their journey back home, they stop for the night and one of the brothers opens up his sack and discovers that there was a grain money sitting there in his sack, just, just sitting there. And it kind of freaked him out. And he got confused and afraid. He tells his brothers and they all start freaking out. And they say, what is this that God has done to us? Their guilty conscience and fear of vengeance from God had surfaced again when they found that grain money returned in that one sack. Imagine how much more fearful they became when later on they discovered that all their money was restored. Have you ever been in that sort of situation where it's like your sins have found you out and, and you grow afraid? Like to these guys, they must have been thinking more in terms of like uh, karma coming back to bite them. When they report to their father Yaakov about what transpired in Egypt and inform them that, you know what, Shimon, he's, he's held prisoner over there and they won't let him go unless we bring Binyamin with us back to Egypt. Man, Yaakov was just overwhelmed at this point and he complains to his sons. He's like, Yosef is gone. Shimon is gone. Am I supposed to be losing Binyamin too? All of this is against me, he says. And in saying this, he's pretty much blaming his sons for the loss of Yosef and Shimon. And he complains and refuses to allow Binyamin to go. He was simply not willing to lose yet another son, especially the only son he has left of his most beloved Rachel. Now check out what happens in verse 37. How ridiculous is the offer of Reuven that if 
anything were to happen to Benjamin, then he would allow his own two sons to be killed. For Yaakov, that would be three sons and two grandsons gone. What was Reuven thinking? I can just imagine the look of disbelief on Yaakov's face. Like, how could you even suggest that man? Do you hear yourself talking? It's no wonder that Reuven keeps getting passed over, as though he could kind of claw back this firstborn birthright. And time after time, he's just rejected again and again. Now, we're not told if Yaakov had responded directly to Reuven in any sort of way. All we know that is he refused to release Benjamin to go with them. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter 43, where some time had passed and they had just about finished all the grain that they had. So Israel instructs his sons to go back to Egypt to purchase more grain. And this time, it's Yehuda who speaks up and reminds their father of their predicament. They cannot return without Benjamin. So Yehuda takes the lead here and he says, Send the boy with me. The Hebrew word used here for boy is na'ar. Now any time that Benjamin was referred to anywhere else in the passage, he's referred to as the youngest. But here specifically he says, send the na'ar with me. From this clue in Hebrew, uh, these passages confirm that Benjamin was still quite young. So that may have played a little bit of a role in why Yaakov might have been a little hesitant to allow Benjamin to go and take that long journey to Egypt. But come on, he had all his older brothers with him. What could possibly have happened? Well, back to Yehuda. So he's the one that says, send the boy with me. Now, unlike his eldest brother who offered his two sons as a surety bond for Benjamin, Yehuda offers himself. Now, what exactly would Yehuda have been risking in this offer? Well, remember, Reuven would have been passed over due to his indiscretions by sleeping with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And then you have Shimon and Levi, who, due to their bloodlust on account of their sister Dina's rape by the king of Shechem, they had killed all the men in Shechem. They would have been passed over. So now here we have Yehuda, who's the fourth-born and the most likely inheritor of the wealth and authority of the clan. Finally, Israel has a son that he could trust, but more importantly, he trusted everything in God's hands. So Israel sends all his sons, including Benjamin, back to Egypt once their grain had run out, and he ensures that they take all the money that had mysteriously made their way back into their grain bags plus the equal amount to purchase more grain. He also has them fill their containers with some of the best products that their land has to offer as gifts to Safnat Paneach. When Yosef sees that they've returned and Benjamin was with them, he orders his household manager to prepare a feast for this band of brothers at his house. Now, why were they so fearful when they were ushered into Yosef's house? Imagine what they must have been thinking. Why is this man so interested in us? Why is he putting us through all this trouble? Why is he being so weird? Well, Yosef comes out and he greets them warmly and then asks questions about the family. Clue number one. And then Yosef addresses Benjamin directly and greets him with a blessing, even invoking the name of their Hebrew god, Elohim. Clue number two. 
and had seen his little brother, they're reunited again, but still such worlds apart. Yosef is so overwhelmed that he retreats to his room and weeps. Once composed, he returns and dinner is served. What we see in these verses is a completely accurate way that a meal of this sort would be served in Egypt, where Yosef ate alone. And then you have the brothers that are together as a group, and the Egyptian house servants, um, they'd eat separately from both the brothers and from Yosef. So it's a well-documented Egyptian custom that the head of the house never eats with the servants. But why didn't these servants eat with the Israelite brothers? Well, we're told in verse 32 that Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews because it's abhorrent to them. Egyptians were sensitive to the social stigma that's attached to sharing a meal table with foreigners, you see. And discrimination ran rampant throughout Egypt. You see, Hebrews, like many Semite tribes and people groups in this era, they were shepherds, and Egyptians saw shepherds as the lowest class of people, and their mere presence was offensive. So an Egyptian would never eat with a shepherd. You know, Egyptians valued cattle, not sheep. That's one of the reasons that the Egyptians' highest deity, Isis, was represented by a bull. Soon, another aspect of this Egyptian tradition comes into play. The Israelites were going to be given the land of Goshen to live in, a land where uh, they'd be away from the bulk of Egyptian society and they could grow their sheep without offending any Egyptians. Problem solved, right? We'll get back to Goshen in another study. As the brothers sat down to eat, they were completely stunned to discover that the place settings for them in their reserved seats were from eldest to youngest. And it was in perfect birth order. Like, what could this mean? Clue number three. And then we see that Benjamin was given a portion of food that was five times the size of everybody else. Now, scholars have debated the meaning behind this fivefold blessing of the food. And the general consensus is that in Egypt, a prince or a ruler was given five times as much as everyone else as a sign of their royalty. Of course, that kind of raises a, a question. Uh, what was Yosef signifying with this? Could it be that Yosef was simply honoring the brother that he'd have the most affinity to? The one that he shared a common mother with? And, and the one who, out of his 11 brothers, was completely innocent of any wrongdoing in connection with Yosef's being sold into slavery. But we also shouldn't look over the fact that the very first king of Israel would be a descendant of Benjamin. Pretty cool, hey? Now, consider how favoritism toward Rachel's son would silently test the attitudes of the brothers. You know, any long-standing envy, dislike, or animosity, it, it couldn't be masked very easily. Now, it appears that they pass this test as the passage finishes by saying, so they drank and enjoyed themselves with him. And that's where the passage for today's study comes to an end. So the dream that Yosef had as a 17-year-old finally came true over 20 years later. As soon as he was triggered and remembered his dream, we see him immediately start to test his brothers. To me, his reaction is kind of like pinching yourself to make sure you're not dreaming. Have you ever been in a situation where something seemed too good to be real, like you must be dreaming? When we look at Yosef's story, 
he's seen in situations where he's pretty much living the dream life and then something bad happens. But then he gets back up again and starts living the dream life again. But then another something bad happens. And finally, in this part of the story, he's pretty much on top of the world, right where God meant for him to be for such a time as this. Personally, I believe that God speaks to us in a language that we can understand, and sometimes he reveals bits and pieces that we could put together and discover his divine providence at work. Now, if there's anything I hope you walk away with from our study today, is that God's will is always done. Sometimes he drops hints and clues for us early on only to serve as reminders and confirmations down the road that he is always working out his will in his perfect timing. Friends, I hope you prayerfully read through these passages again at your own pace and ask God to reveal the message and his truths that he has for you to discover. I strongly recommend that you take time to gather with your own access communities and review these studies together and share what God's Spirit has been revealing as you read His Holy Scriptures. A few things you could discuss with your access groups this week. What would Yaakov have thought when he was faced to send Binyamin back to Egypt after they'd already left Shimon in prison there? What do you imagine his brothers thought when they were brought into Yosef's house? Describe the scene as you might imagine it. And why would Yosef seat the brothers according to their age and give Binyamin the blessing of more food? Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. As always, it's such a joy to be able to get around God's word and learn more about his plan and his purposes and about his amazing love and his promises. I'm so excited to see where he'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the Shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen. You will always be more than enough for me. Nothing's gonna stop the plans you made. Nothing's gonna.